BNY Mellon is the bank of banks. We fuel basically the financial sector and keep track of valuations and so on. So I think we are really a core engine of the financial industry. More people are you know, getting sick or not feeling well because they are not motivated. Somebody who's motivated doesn't feel the effort. Well, of course, there are limitations. Eh? If, you, if your body is physically tired, you need rest. But motivation, I think, is everything. A career is like a, a novel. It is written in chapters. And there are, you know, there are thick novels, there are thin novels, there are novels with 100 chapters, there are novels with three chapters. All formats work, but there's got to be a story. This is Siana TV. My name is Hendrik Dekkers. I'm here today with Johan Kestis, who is the head of Cyber International at Bank of New York Mellon. A very warm welcome, Johan. Thank you very much, Hendrik. Johan, you have a master's degree in electronic engineering from the University of Ghent. You have an MBA from the uh, Vlerik Business School. And your career so far has been a mix of both finance and technology, uh, both in sales, consulting, and also as a, uh, as a CIO. And uh, you started your career in the 90s, but tell us a little bit more about yourself. What's your background and how did you arrive in your uh, current role? Well, as you said, my first love was engineering mm -hmm. and I have a degree in um, uh, semiconductor uh, physics. Mm -hmm. And um, I also did an MBA, but uh, upon completing my military service, I did not really well, what field to choose. Mm -hmm. So I, I went into consulting. I thought I would learn a lot. It's a bit like a tapas bar. You can do different things. And we would see. Um, and I forgot the clock a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, about seven years later, I was a partner. And that was at McKinsey, right? And I was at McKinsey. And um, my first project, they said, well, you're an electronics engineer. And, you know, you seem to know a bit about that. And we have this project on electronic payments mm -hmm. to create the infrastructure in the Netherlands. Why don't you go and be part of that team? And that's how I ended up on the crossroads of um, finance and technology. I'm still at that crossroad, mm -hmm. a bit like Robert Johnson, you know, selling your soul to the devil on the crossroads. <laughs> it's a bit that. Eh? So I'm still at that junction of technology and finance, but in different modalities. I created payment systems. Um, at McKinsey, we were involved in, in the creation of KBC, uh, so two banks and two insurance companies that came together. And I worked a lot with the board, and then I went there to help them do the growth in Eastern Europe. Uh, and then I went to SWIFT, which is also finance and technology. And there I discovered the world because SWIFT is global. I organized Cybos in Sydney and other places. Um, and then after a while, I, I was asked to go to SAP in Germany, mm -hmm. uh, basically as a COO for the banking unit. And I ended up leading their vertical in banking and insurance. And then for family reasons, I wanted to come back to Belgium. So I rejoined the consulting firm as a partner for Belgium and Luxembourg, Etikarni. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of years later, I wanted to really get back into the line and accepted the role of CIO 
for um, ING, Belgium and Luxembourg. And about six years later, uh, BNY Mellon asked me to become their CIO for the European Bank, which is what BNY Mellon does in the Eurozone. Mm -hmm. And now recently, only two months ago, uh, they asked me to take care of information security or cyber uh, at international level. No. And so but they, it's really always technology and finance. That's what I've done. Okay. And the Bank of New York Mellon is not a household name in Europe? No. Uh, so tell us a little bit, what is it that the bank does international and, and, and more specifically here in Europe? Okay. Have you heard about the musical Hamilton? No. On Broadway. <laughs> now it's a it's a it's a hip hop music. You know, it's a rap music. It, it talks about the life of uh, Alexander Hamilton, who was the first uh, Secretary of Finance in the United States. He was also sort of the Chief of Staff of George Washington, and he founded the Bank of New York. Okay. So we're a very old bank. Later on, we merged with Mellon, and Mellon is is one of the Pittsburgh uh, banking mm -hmm. families that you know basically the, the banker of. Carnegie. And so those two banks came together. But it is true that uh, if you would go down here in Mechelen in the street, very few people would know it. Mm -hmm. um, it is the Bank of Banks. Okay. It does securities processing. Mm -hmm. It does custody. It does asset valuation. It does foreign exchange. It does liquidity provision. It does bond issuing. So our clients are uh, banks asset managers, pension funds, trusts, um, and we're very big in that. Mm -hmm. Our, our um, assets under custody, which is sort of safekeeping, yeah. um, amounts to close to 50 trillion. 50 trillion. Trillion, <laughs> uh, not billion, trillion. Uh, we have three, four trillion assets under management. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a very big bank. Mm -hmm. It's a global, systemic, yep. important financial institution. So we are really at the top of the charts of almost any regulator um, <laughs> in, in, in you know, developed countries. Um, and, and we fuel basically you know, the financial sector and keep, keep track of valuations and so on. So I think we are really, you know, a core engine of the financial industry. Okay. Now, Johan, you, uh, we, in preparation of this interview, we looked a little bit at your long career, 34 years, and, uh, and you selected two programs that you wanted to uh, talk a little bit more uh, about. And one was a very special program, which is the European Stability Mechanism. That you, uh, that you did to save the euro, basically, in, in, in uh, 2012. Can you tell us the context and, and the story of, uh, of that program? Yeah. yeah, when you asked me, you know, what project would you like to talk about, mm -hmm. I decided it may be best to go a little bit back in history. Yeah. Um, because you can often only see the true impact mm -hmm. of what something gave after a couple of years. So um, we, we all may recall in 2011... Uh, the euro uh, was heavily under pressure. Ireland and Portugal had lost access to the public capital markets. Mm -hmm. um, Greece followed. Spain was also in trouble. People were fearing about Italy, but Italy managed to stay out of trouble. And the Eurogroup, which is basically the ministers of finance uh, 
of uh, the countries that have had adopted the euro. There were about, I think, 16 in total. Now 19, I think. Yeah, all right. They, they decided to create a new supranational. And what is a supranational? Think of something like the IMF mm -hmm. or the EIB that basically would be the lender of last resort. So if there would be a national uh, sovereign that lost access to the debt markets, um, they would basically save that sovereign. And that had to be created. And of course, um, daily the headlines were talking about the schism in the euro. They talked about the northern euro and the southern euro. And, Everybody was very nervous, but there was a lot of political courage to say, we're going to save this. Mm -hmm. So this was uh, Spain and Ireland and Greece almost collapsing financially. And they had like uh, interest rates uh, that were huge and so on, right? Yeah. And so uh, they decided basically to create this new supranational agency and it had to be there almost immediately. Mm -hmm. So they went to somebody who is really one of the distinguished architects of a lot what, what, uh, what the European Union is, mm -hmm. but, but already retired, Klaus Regling. Mm -hmm. And they said, Klaus, go. And he had four or five people, and they decided to have a tender for people to come and help them to build the IT systems, the organization, the trading room, the debt finance programs, and so on. And I was sitting in my office at the time, and for whatever reason, a major project got postponed. It was October 2011, and the client called and said, we want to do this, but early next year. So I had time. And oh, there came the call, you know, do you want to bid for this? I said, well, why not? No. But we prepared really well, and, and I, I was able to unite my colleagues, and we went there a day in advance in Luxembourg, to rehearse, and we did that well, and we went in and we said, okay, we've done it, and everybody was there, all the big names, we said, okay, participating is probably more important than winning, um, but a few weeks later we got a call, okay, go. Then we were trying to find our feet and getting started, and Klaus Regling came back and he said, I just, you know, come back from a meeting with Angela Merkel, we thought we had 18 months. What can we do in nine months? Okay. We were in shock, right? Oh my God. We, 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 we thought this was barely doable in 18 months. We had written our proposal. We will do everything we can, you know. Go to the bottom. We may make it. Here comes in this guy. <laughs> half you know, the time. Half the time. But um, we, we, we were very lucky because... Because of that urgency, um, we could, quote-unquote, break all the rules. Mm -hmm. And I had a team of about 25 people all helping me. And by some form of chemistry, it all came together. And the team was very motivated because everybody had a very important role to play. And we knew, I mean, this was high stakes. Mm -hmm. This wasn't a, you know... Top management wants a second opinion, but they really know the answer already. Please provide some documentation. This was, oh my God, this may not work, or it may. And, and we were able to, to really do a lot of things. And normally, in, in a 
global international context, you have lots of procedures to, um, to respect. And we didn't have time. No. So we came up with these very creative ideas. I'll give you an example. Um, we had to hire um, a complete ID department, traders, uh, compliance people, basically a small bank, mm -hmm. uh, in about three months. And, and normally that would take a year. How do you do that? So we said to Klaus, why don't you write a letter? You know, you're the guy appointed as the head of this new supranational to all the CEOs of the global systemically important banks mm -hmm. and all the central banks of Europe. And you say, I want 10 volunteers. I spread them out a little bit because we needed some HR folks, we needed traders, we needed IT people, so, you know, segmented a bit. But basically, write to these 75 institutions, ask for 10 volunteers, I will have 750 candidates. And that worked? It worked. And it worked. I, mean, we, we, I remember we wrote a letter on a Sunday night. There was a day of editing. Can we do that? Shall we ask Jean-Claude Juncker? Yeah, maybe we do. But we got the green light. And the letter went out on Monday night. And on Wednesday night, Deutsche Bank said, here are my 10 volunteers. And then we created the rumor that we had already a lot of response. And a week later, we had 700 candidates. Well, um, and that was quite, quite amazing. But on a technical level, so we had to create this IT system that was able to support up to 500 billion in euros in capital with all the risk controls, the functionality and so on. We had no time. So we went completely into the cloud. Mm -hmm. And the European stability mechanism and is... And that's 10 years ago. That's 12 years ago. Yeah. We went completely into the cloud. And we had tenders. These tenders went very fast. In three weeks, we decided. Normally, it takes like a year and a half. And then we said, okay, uh, to the winner of, of the, the system, Murex, do it in the cloud. Uh, what do you mean? Uh, do it in the cloud. Okay. Well, yeah, okay, I'll try. Uh, within two weeks. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. So, but the, the stakes were very high eh? and, and, and there was a lot of uncertainty. At the same time, I think um, everybody had a, a very strong sense of empowerment and the team had great fun. Uh, it was really an example of work hard, play hard. So we were all staying at the same hotel. In Luxembourg. In it? Luxembourg. And of course, after a while, the staff knows that these guys, they leave early, they come in late, they all wear blue and gray suits. Who are they? So they were a bit curious, mm -hmm. so we explained. And, and then they said, well, you know, we're really a bit hungry. And the chef said, okay, I'm officially I'm closed, but you seem like nice guys. So after a couple of weeks, we had a deal with the chef. We said in the eve morning what we wanted to eat in the evening. And we came in at 10.30 and he was there. And, and it was really, it went, it went it was probably, for me, the highlight of being part of a team where everybody was just self-propelling. And, and I, th I thought, for me, as, as a personal reward, um, that was maybe the most important thing. We all know that the Euro crisis went away when Mario Draghi said in 2012, September, uh, we will do whatever it takes. Then people said, okay. This is serious. Mm -hmm. So the uncertainty went away. But in the meantime, we had built this thing. It's still there today. 
We were in the market. We were raising medium-term notes, two billion every week. We were operating. We were settling. Everything was done in six months. In six months. Well, it was a little bit. Every once in a while, one or the other procedure was still a bit rough and tumbling, but. Basically, the thing was working. So that was quite quite an adventure. And so, and so what, what, what were for you the, the most important learnings from that? What did you learn from that? It's very important in a crisis that you assemble people who understand what's at stake. Mm-hmm. And as a team leader, you should make sure they are empowered for what you ask them to do. Mm-hmm. Because if they know what they do is meaningful, if they find their purpose in that, they will give their best. I think more people are, quote-unquote, you know, getting sick or, or um, not, not feeling well because they are not motivated. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's motivated doesn't feel the effort. No. Well, of course, there are limitations. Eh? If, you, if, if your body is physically tired, you need rest. But... Motivation, I think, is everything. And the the biggest lesson was somehow, by some unwritten alchemy, the motivation of a number of personal people came together with the task, which was unique. I I will never do a project like that again in my life. So if the purpose is big enough and people are empowered, they can do crazy things. Crazy in like exceptional, yeah, exceptional and, and, you know, I never thought I could do this. Eh? Really exceptional things. Yeah. Okay, super. And I can imagine that that experience helped you later on in your career as well. Then It is something unique. Um, th- there was also a bit of a cold turkey. You know, afterwards you go back to normal, life. normal projects and, and people ask you to optimize the administration flow of accounts payable for a not so big bank and 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 you know it 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 is exceptional and it will remain always exceptional okay let's talk about the second uh, program that you're um, qu- uh, quite proud of and that is the uh, security documentation program at uh, at ing tell us a little bit the context what was the problem that yeah. that needed to be solved i, I chose the, the the second and one and that was when you were cio yeah cio at ig is about well, it's still fairly recent, five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think this experience may potentially be more relevant than the European Stability Mechanism one, because that was a little bit of an outlier. I mean, those things don't happen every day. Um, but I think it is quite inspirational for many CIOs of what to do. So what was the problem? ING was, was a, a great bank. It had... 30 years ago, it had a very good IT architecture with what was then state-of-the-art. Mm-hmm. And it had evolved quite well, adapted to the internet, mobile phone, everything. Um, but the core of the applications, and software can live for a very long time, uh, core of applications were you know, 20 years old, well-written, well-defined, some of them in algo. Which is sort of, uh, you know, for computer folks, it's like Latin or Greek. <laughs> you know, it's a bit of an old language, but that doesn't mean it's bad. But what we have seen is over 
30 to 40 years, the maintenance of what is called the security documentation had been a bit uh, degrading. And it, you know, if it degrades by 5% every year, after 20 years, it's complete, completely useless. And how come the bank could still function? Um, because often the people were still around. They remembered what they had written. Um, but in terms of a reflection of the control environment for a core bank, this was really not unacceptable. Right. We had about 450 applications, and you know the complete control environment. If you describe that, it was described in in Word with spreadsheets attached and so on. Um, can easily be for you know core bank can be like a couple of thousand pages, smaller applications less, but it was about half a million pages of documentation of documentation, and it was in poor state. Um, and and you know audit and other uh, compliance folks uh, were really pointing out at the risks, and regulators got concerned. So we started the remediation program, which was basically, you know. Uh, fix the op f fix the surface if you if you understand what yeah. I mean, and you know yeah okay that is not good replace it by something that is good, and people were sort of crunching through that, and I I didn't like that. Uh, one of the reasons is that if you have to fix the surface, it's very hard to stay focused eh, because you you tend to lose concentration, and certainly my engineers I mean they're only human probably would do the same. But I also had an idea of doing it differently. Mm -hmm. Because what I saw was, if you looked across those applications, they often had the same requirement. So in theory, they should have 450 times the same control. In practice, it was approximately 432 different controls. Mm -hmm. And that is because there was no cohesion. So that's when I came up with, let's, let's do this in a database. Mm -hmm. And you know, not a classical Oracle database, but more, you know, uh, Mongo or NoSQL, yeah. where you could do a little bit of Hadoop. Yeah. To to because then basically, if you know, there would be a new regulation or a new requirement coming in, you articulate it and you shoot it in all 450 documents. We wanted to do that. But that, of course, requires a fundamental rethink of everything. So we were starting that. And then group headquarters got a bit nervous and say, hey, the others are uh, already 10% you know, down the road, and you're only 1% down the road. I said, yeah, but we're doing something different. They're putting a Band-Aid onto the wound. And we want to fix it. On a and we are you know, seriously uh, you know, eliminating the root cause. And I got a lot of pressure from management saying, oh, you're, you're saying you're fixing this, but... But you're not. I don't believe it. And there was one guy who stood up. He was the head of second line of defense at, at ING Group. He said, no, 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 no. They're doing the right things. Yeah, but it's going way too slow. He was right. It was going way too slow. But I said, no, we're going to continue. Okay, and then, you know, this went on. And um, uh, it sort of, you know, continued its life, and then other things took over, 
other events happened and, and, and people sort of lost it. It was no longer headline news anymore. First page, it was somewhere, you know, page 11 of the, of the paper. And then I decided to, to move to BNY Mellon a couple of years later. But, and, and then, just to show you how this goes, huh, um, um, for two years I heard nothing about this. Okay, yeah. and, and honestly, I, I then thought, okay, it was one of these projects where you may have been right, but you certainly didn't deliver, you know, a big success. I really thought that. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Yeah, I tried. But then I met, actually, the auditor, and, and he said to me, you know, you, you want to know something? No. I said, you know, this thing is really great, you know, it works. I said, okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, even all the other banks who initially, you know, were into the Band-Aid business, yep. uh, they, they also are adopting it now. And then I had one regret, because originally I wanted to go one step further. I actually wanted to rewrite this documentation as a piece of code yeah. that would automatically check the application on booting. <laughs> now, we already took on an amount of work where everybody declared us crazy. If I would have done that, probably everybody would have declared us fit for lockup in a mental asylum. Yep. <laughs> um, but it, we should have done it, um, because that would be the ultimate way yep. of assuring compliance. But why is this project perhaps more relevant than you know, the European Stability Mechanism? Because I'm sure this story is a hundred times out there in the market. I'm really sure of it. I mean, there's so much emphasis these days on compliance, yep. on regulation. I'm 100% convinced many of my peers, many engineers are struggling with, how do, I, how do I get this beast under control? And there's one thing I learned. Regulation mm -hmm. is like software. It comes in releases. If you look at Basel, you know, we're now at four, you know, and pretty soon there will be five. It contains bugs. Also. Yeah, it does. <laughs> uh, it people change it over time. And it's actually quite easy to understand. If you think about reg regulation as sort of an expression of rules mm -hmm. and a computer program, what they teach you at university is an expression of rules. So yeah. they are much more related than you may think. But... To make a long story short, um, I think the lesson here is dare to follow your vision. Mm -hmm. And you will get headwinds. And, and my headwinds was basically none of my bosses supported me. Yeah. Um, and when do you know when to continue? And when do you know when, when to give up? Because it's not always <laughs> good to go ahead against uh, the headwind, right? Yeah, you're right. It's not always good, and sometimes you, you have to stop. Um, what made me go on? I, I think I was just too stubborn to give up. Mm -hmm. And I'd say, fine. Um, and the other thing is a deep belief that you don't want to do superficial repair, but really fix things. Yeah. I mean, we all live in a house, right? So let's imagine we got water coming through the wall. How many people, if they would have put their lifelong savings in a house, would say, I'll just go to, you know, hobby center, buy, buy some white paint. 
No, no. What you do is you take the paint away, you take the... Uh, the, the root cause. Uh, fix the root cause, you put in special cement. Why? Because it's your bloody home. Yeah. And, and the security documentation in the bank is, the f is one of the fundamentals. Yeah, exactly. So I think that was what made me go on. Um, it can be, quote-unquote, career-threatening mm -hmm. uh, if you follow that road. And if it is, so be it. Then you're stubborn enough to, to, to take the consequences of that. Y yeah, well, yeah. And probably you'll regret it, but in the end, I mean, you know, there are other opportunities and so on. And, and I think it's, it's very important to, to, to keep your integrity. Yeah. So, Johan, you worked at McKinsey, at SAP, AT Kearney, at, at, uh, at ING, now at uh, BNY Mellon. Explain us a little bit your, your current responsibility. What is, what is your focus today? I worry basically as head of... Um, Cyber International or Information Security International mm -hmm. about maintaining the bank safe and compliant in terms of information security. And that means, and I like to uh, see my job um, as, um, uh, you know, who are my audiences? Mm -hmm. And uh, one audience for sure is the regulators. BNY Mellon interacts with more than 70 regulators um, and they all want to see that things are okay. So there's a lot of um, explaining, there's a lot of regulatory-sponsored um, testing, there's a lot of inspections and I just have to make sure everything is right. Mind you, there are 12,000 engineers in BNY Mellon well. who on a daily basis, you know, do things, um, but so that is my first audience. My second audience, which is a bit special, is uh, market infrastructures, clearing, settlement, stock exchanges. Um, and they are special because if, if you are not connected to them, if they, do, they also want you to be safe, mm -hmm. um, you cannot play your role in the markets, as I explained earlier. Yep. The third one, and perhaps the most important one, is clients. Because mm -hmm. clients say, hey, you, you are the, the safekeeper of, of the assets yeah. that I manage. I want to know that you are um, safe and secure. And that is not always an easy communication mm -hmm. because you want to inspire that trust. At the same time, you're not going to explain to all of your clients, hey, here is my, my key. You see, it is made by, <laughs> so, yeah. by this manufacturer and the lock is functioning like that. You're, you're just saying, look, I have great locks yeah. and they're really good. But it is not an easy and natural uh, communication. But let's, let's talk a little bit. I mean, Bank of New York Mellon, like I said, it's, it's a systemic bank. So it's the bank of the banks. So it's, it's, if that falls down... A lot of the financial uh, industry will will fall down, right? So, so cybersecurity is super, super important, even more important than in a regular bank, maybe. So, so what is the what is the the, the strategy there? How how can you and and, and the teams uh, in in, uh, in in your bank how can how can you set up the best cybersecurity in the world? Because that's basically what you need to do, right? It is quite a, a, an enormous task, and it has, it has multiple dimensions on it. There are a couple of strengths. Mm -hmm. Number one, 
um, because we are global, we see a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, we see what is happening in, in a lot of markets. And often, you know, something starts in one market and then goes to another market. And so we are very exposed. Mm -hmm. By that exposure, we have to be very fit, very alert. Mm -hmm. uh, we have really world-class incident management teams. Um, but that gives us an advantage, uh, yeah. I think. The second is the breadth of our engineering teams. Um, they're really good. They are uh, introducing constantly new solutions, new tooling. Um, and yeah, being a very big bank, uh, we try always to have the best talent and to have yeah. that talent available in large numbers. And that probably helps us too. Um, at the same time, because we are so big, um, and this is how your advantage can also be your disadvantage, mm -hmm. we'll also be very complex. So we have a lot of work. Yeah. And we have a lot of work to make sure everything stays um, uh, secure. We're also very big. So it, it, it is very difficult to completely paralyze an extremely big um, organization. Give me some numbers. How many people in total? How many people in IT? How many people in cyber? So BNY Mellon has about staff, about 55,000. There are a number of contractors, a temporary label adding to that. There are about 12,000 people uh, in IT, both on the application side and on the infrastructure side. Um, there are a number of contractors added uh, to that, which vary a little bit, um, uh, sometimes over time. Uh, there's a very big operations department because a lot of what we do has to do with strong operational activities. Mm -hmm. So technology and operations together come with, uh, with CIO Bridget Engel, who's basically my boss boss. Mm -hmm. um, and that's about 60% of the organization. Well. Um, it operates in uh, more than uh, 40 countries, more than 60 markets. Um, but of course, you can also serve clients uh, in markets where you are not physically present. Yep. As you know, the financial industry, at least the capital flow side of it, is heavily concentrated in you know, New York, London, Singapore, Tokyo. Um, increasingly also, for example, in... Um, in Dubai. So you see the financial centers in the world come on. And there, of course, we are present. We are very active. Uh, but it's a very big organization. And cyber in total? Uh, cyber, but it depends a little bit where you put the interface. Uh, because there are a lot of people in infrastructure. Mm -hmm. That basically, if, you, you know, if you're a firewall engineer, are you an infrastructure engineer or a cyber engineer? But cyber in its narrowest sense or information security as currently set up is approximately 600 people. 600 people just on information security. Yeah. Okay, and what is then your role? Where do you, where do you spend most of your time? What, 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 do you, what do you do and what do your teams do? Well, so three things. I explained um, uh, the audiences I have to communicate with. Third, I worry quite a lot about uh, the cyber at our suppliers because we use Microsoft, uh, like anybody. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, ask yourself the question, what would happen if Office 365 has a serious bug? Well, I'm pretty sure there are always bugs but because any software bug. has bugs, but yeah. no, would be, you know, out for two weeks. 
Oh, our team, yeah. Yeah, and, and by the way, the, the Microsoft engineers are, you know, probably among the best uh, that you can find, and I'm sure they're doing everything they can, but there, there is a lot of, uh, a lot of questions also from the regulators um, on the security level of cloud. Mm -hmm. Partially because it's new, partially because it's intangible. You, you, you don't really know where it is, so, so how can you know it's secure? Partially because it's heavily concentrated. There are only f four or five major players. So there are many reasons why the trust from a cyber uh, perspective in the cloud still has to grow, and I, I, I spend a lot of time on that. Um, and then there is the usual uh, awareness building with staff, mm -hmm. uh, because security is ultimately a feeling. It is a feeling. Now that feeling may be extremely justified, because if you look around you, you don't see any harm, and everything is clean, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. But it remains a feeling, and therefore, we require on you know, our staff, our, uh, our employees, and our contractors, to be vigilant, to have the right time of, behave, uh, of behavior, uh, to, to have basically hygiene. Yeah. That's what it is. It's cyber hygiene. Yeah. And that, of course, in a community which is larger than 100,000 people, is also a daily challenge. But I, I'm pretty proud of what people do. I, I see that. I see how they react. Yeah. You know, I, I've seen this. I've seen that. I, I'm not sure I should you know, bring this forward, but this looks strange. Yeah. And, you know, I call that little hero. It's really, or heroine. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's really um, uh, an, an expression of, of, of their commitment yeah. and their engagement. Now, Johan, we live in, in special types. Huh? There's uh, global instability, geopolitical instability, and so on. So I can imagine that also that plays out in, in the field of cybersecurity. So not to scare everybody that's, that's, that's watching this, but can you give us a little bit of feeling where uh, cyber crime and cyber war is going nowadays? Well, I think it is fairly well understood that uh, there's this so-called almost segmentation of cyber uh, crime. And I think a couple of years ago, you would have what I would call the alpinists. You know? They want to climb the mountain and put the flag on top. And I, I believe that that was really there. Uh, however, you also have what I would call the pickpockets, uh, which are people that try, you know, they send phishing to the public at large. Yeah. And no there's wins. always somebody who, you know, gives their uh, pin code to their bank account. And, uh, but, but basically, I think the impact would be relatively low. That's the second segment. The third segment, I would call them the organized crime, mm -hmm. um, and those are people basically ransomware, you know, what happened to, to Maersk, uh, what happened here in Belgium to, to Picanol, basically people that, you know, they put, they take your systems out yeah. against the ransom. And then there are state actors, uh, which are probably more difficult to grab, mm -hmm. uh, because they're never officially part of the state, but sort of circle around it, and those are there as well. Um, and if you follow the specialized press, you will see that they are quite active. Um, 
Now, in general, your question is, will cyber be getting more complex? And the answer, regardless of, you know, whether you talk about the alpinist or the organized crime, the answer must be yes, for the following two reasons. We depend more and more on technology. Mm -hmm. And if you talk about the Internet of Things and everything uh, that you now have, even today, if you buy household appliances, you know, they're app controlled. That's a point of weakness, potential intrusion. Mm -hmm. huh? So because we use more and more um, um, technology, by definition, our dependence and therefore the risk if it goes wrong must increase. And the second reason is it's an arms race. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we use artificial intelligence yeah, to more detect. And, more, yeah. and, and, and at some point in time, Hackers will use artificial intelligence, and then we will use super artificial intelligence. And um, so it is an arms race. And, and that is the reason why I believe uh, the career field to go into is cybersecurity, because you will never be out of a job <laughs> if you know uh, what to do. Yeah. Uh, how, how big is your team today, uh, Johan? My team directly is uh, for the international part, so I'm not counting all the engineers, mm -hmm. is about 45 people. Okay. Uh, so you now have a team of 45. When you were CIO of ING, I can imagine you had a, had a bigger team as well, so you managed different sizes of teams. Yeah. So what is your, um, what is your management style? Let's talk a little bit more about, about you as a, as, as, a, as a manager. How do you create international, local, successful teams? What is, what's your magic ingredient? I think, um, I, I will start by saying what I'm not good at. Um, I think I'm not very good at controlling. Mm -hmm. Sort of like, are you on target? I can ask the question. Yeah. But a real controller makes you sort of tremble with fear when, when the question is asked. And mm -hmm. um, that's not my strength. I think my strength is twofold. I try to inspire people. Mm -hmm. And I try to, to make them feel supported. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm backing you. Yep. Um, and uh, basically it boils down to what, what we discussed earlier. You try to create the condition that somebody feels empowered and motivated. And that's when you get the best out of people. Yeah. Um, that is a reasonably personal thing, mm -hmm. unless you are one of these extremely charismatic people like, you know, Elon Musk or Steve Jobs, but even those people, you know, have their, how should I say, gray side. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I'm not, I, I don't have that charisma. But in a small team, I have that. And I, when you, you manage larger groups, like I did at SAP, I always feel a little bit uncomfortable. For example, we were at this client convention with SAP and you walk into the elevator of a big hotel somewhere in Germany and there is somebody in the elevator who says, hello, I work for you. <laughs> you don't know him. And you're like, oh my God, I don't know who that is. And so, and that doesn't do me anything. And I feel embarrassed. You know, what do you say to that person? Yeah. person is, you know, perhaps giving the best of the energy to, 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 to move forward. And here you are, you are the boss and you, you cannot even say, 
oh yeah, hey, how are you? How, how are your kids? You know, thank you for what you did last week. No. Because you don't know. I've never seen the person was living in another country. There were four management layers. But at the same time, I understand you're quite good at that. Because you've managed teams of people that now have become CIOs in, in many different organizations. You explained me a little bit all the people that were in your team and now have, have, have CIO and, uh, and, and other positions. What is your special talent there that you can, you are um, a breeding nest of, of, of digital talent? I think I actually don't know in, in terms of please write it down on the whiteboard. I don't think I could write down the mm -hmm. formula. I don't think I could do that. Uh, but it has something to do with what we discussed earlier, the, the authenticity, the, also when we spoke about the risk, okay, if it has career consequences, maybe I should accept it. Um, and in, in the team I described, uh, so about four or five people left that team to become CIO at a competitor, mm -hmm. sometimes with a couple of years of, you know, interval, but they all became it. And they all came back to me and, and said, you know, when we were on that team, um, it meant something. I'm not saying this is the reason why. That mm -hmm. would have been, that would be probably a grotesque um, claim. So it, that's not true, but it contributed. Yeah. And I think it has to do with the formula of being true to yourself, try to empower, um, and believe in the best. I, I once said it to, to, you know, when you give these town halls to a thousand people, I, I, I said to them, and they didn't believe me. They didn't believe me. I said to them, okay, so let's imagine I'm twice as smart as each one of you. Each one of you has an IQ, let's say, of 120. Mm -hmm. yeah? Let's say I'm twice as smart, it's 240. I would probably be declared insane with that type of IQ, rightfully so, but Okay, let's assume it is that way. You're a thousand people in the room. What's your collective IQ? It's 120,000. How can I ever beat that? Mm -hmm. And then I said something else. I said, how much, of, how much of your brain is now engaged? I suspect, I said, it's less than 20%. I think it's true. Mm -hmm. but I can't prove it. Huh? I can't prove it. Can you imagine if you talk to an organization of, uh, and I think it's, wow, true for many organizations uh, as well. If you could do that, if you could double their engagement in mm -hmm. terms of brain power, they would produce twice as much as they currently do. So you believe that in most organizations, the collective brain power of people are, are dramatically underused? I think so, yes. Oh, yeah. Because, well, no. Perhaps I should be a bit more subtle. Um, there is these hygiene tasks in every job that people have to go through, and that, of course, contributes. But there's also, um, if you try to create improvement in an organization, mm -hmm. it can be business, but also inside, a lot depends on framing the problem. And I think a lot of problems are continuation of the questions of the past, mm -hmm. But there must, there's probably a way to, to make them far more intriguing and far more engaging. Okay. 
So we discussed your management style, and, 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 and I believe that uh, it's for, important for you to create an environment where you empower people, where you can give them freedom, you don't like to control uh, people, so I'm, I'm sure you have uh, other systems for that. But managing is, is, is one thing, and leading a team is another thing. So let's discuss a little bit your, your leadership style. How would you describe your own leadership? What kind of a leader are you and, and, and can you give an example? Well, it is the aspirational part. Mm -hmm. yeah, so setting out the vision, if we could do this, um, and also fleshing out a little bit of detail just to create color around it. You know, dressing up the model so it looks really nice. Yeah. I think that is very strong. I can go overboard on that. <laughs> on my team, we had a code word. Uh, we did this exercise how to, you know, become more effective as a team. And one of the things the team said was, sometimes, you know, you go on and on and on, and we can't follow you anymore. And, and then I said, oh, it's like if I'm going to Pluto. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you become Pluto, you know, far away, somewhere in the orbit. We don't really know if it really exists. We don't really know. Are you a planet? <laughs> Doubt it. Um, but, so I said, okay, let's make a deal. Whenever that happens, let's use the code word Pluto. <laughs> so and then we were, you know, brainstorming. Uh, and all of a sudden I was sketching on the whiteboard, Pluto. And then I knew, okay. Okay, let's go back. Let's go back. Two Where are we? Back. Yeah? Okay. So that, that, that helps and that is definitely my style. You know, engaging. Um, I'm bad at controlling, but I think I have a lot of um, intellectual honesty, mm -hmm. which is probably polite speak for tolerating little bullshit, <laughs> um, which helps because it helps with the other big question. We said it earlier, right? Why are people not more engaged? Maybe because we don't frame the problem sharp enough. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should do that. What's the real problem? Um, because if, if my experience is worth something, if you really have a sharp problem definition, the answer is relatively easy. Mm -hmm. It's relatively easy. Is that, is that one of your core strengths? <clears throat> well, I try solving, to live by solving complex problems? I think, think if you talk to many people that know me well, they would say yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so solving problems, telling stories, probably a bit to the extreme. So um, maybe I have been overgifted in that uh, in that department. In that department, and then trying to coach others. Yeah. So what is it that drives you in your work? Is it intellectual challenge? Is it uh, creating the results, delivering the results? Is it uh, helping and having your team, success with the team. What is the, the one thing that really drives you when you go home at the end of the week and you're happy? What must have happened then? I often ask myself the question, either you know, at the end of the day or at the end of the year, mm -hmm. um, how did I move the needle? Mm -hmm. um, and there are many things that we do and they don't move the needle. They're okay, but they don't move the needle. There's, there's not that much wow about them. Yeah. And sometimes you move the needle in, um, 
in very humble and simple ways. Like, um, you know, I remember my assistant uh, telling to me um, in the morning, you know, there's a bit of a situation at home and so on. And during the day I was sort of looking at her. Okay, it's not really, not really the way it should be. And I remember saying around noon, okay, I've had it. You go home now. No, no, I won't stay. No, no, go home. Go now. Like now. Okay. And then there was uh, three days, uh, nothing was said. Next day, assistant was back at work. And the week after that, she said, thank you. That was, that was really good. I didn't realize it myself, but it helped me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know either. I was just acting on instinct. Um, but I moved the needle a little bit in that particular situation. So move the needle. If I would have a mantra, that would be it. You will have an impact. And, and, and even small impacts, but a regular measurable impact. Positive impact. Positive impact. You can also have negative impact. <laughs> Now, Johan, you shared with us your, uh, your personality type, your MBTI uh, profile, which is ESTP, uh, also known as the entrepreneur. And an ESTP is someone with extroverted, observant thinking and prospecting personality traits. And these are people that tend to be very energetic and action-oriented. And they uh, like to navigate whatever is in front of them. And they love uncovering life's opportunities uh, whether socializing with others in, or in more personal pursuits. And um, there's many aspects that we could discuss on your uh, personality. But let me give you uh, a couple of uh, typical strengths of people with that uh, personality type. And you tell me which one relates best uh, to you and maybe you can give an example on that. People with, that are ESTPs, entrepreneurs, they are typically bold. We already touched on that. Rational, very practical, original, perceptive, direct, but also sociable. So does that fit the bill? And where does it fit or where doesn't, doesn't it fit? I think it depends a little bit to how extremely uh, you want it to fit. But in general, yeah, I can, do, I can, I can recognize that a bit. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether I'm bold. I think I'm definitely sort of like an intellectual thinker. Mm -hmm. um, but also the other things you mentioned, yeah, sociable. I think so. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's look at the flip side, the weaknesses side. Let's call them personal development sites. Yeah. Uh, that you, and, and I'm sure that you have uh, uh, developed in several of these uh, areas. People with ESTP profile, they can be insensitive, they can be impatient, they can be risk-prone, sometimes unstructured, they may miss the bigger picture and uh, they're defiant. So which one do you recognize in yourself and how have you overcome? Oh, a few I do. Um, uh, I'm very talkative. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about the Pluto uh, code word, which is sort of also fitting you know, the uh, we also talked about the stubbornness or tenacity of not giving up. Insensitive, I would humbly but extremely strongly 
uh, disagree with. Okay. Because I do think I pick it up. Mm -hmm. But you must have learned that somewhere, no? Because if you're ESTP, so you're more in your brain, you're more rational than you're emotionally developed by, by nature. So you must have picked that up. You must have developed that somewhere. Where have you developed your social, your interpersonal, your relational skills? I don't know. Um, one thing I did in my youth was I, I played the piano. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is um, perhaps something where you learn to communicate without words and, and are sensitive to that. Um, but I do think I'm sensitive to that. I do also believe it has happened to me to read the signals the wrong way. Mm -hmm. So to draw the wrong conclusions out of the signals that you see. That has happened to me on a couple of occasions. Um, but yeah, I, with, with definitely sort of the hungo type of uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, characteristics. I think uh, many people that know me well would say, yeah, yeah, we recognize that. Yeah. <laughs> now, the T and the F, the emotional, the rational, quick uh, discuss that, but the, the N and the S, so you're more uh, sensing than intuitive. And most of the CIOs and, and digital leaders that I interview are more on the intuitive side and not so many on the, on the sensing side because that typically means that um, you, people with a strong S need a lot of data, they need a lot of information, they need to know things before they can make decisions. Is that something that you recognize? Is, do you need to have all the elements before you can make your rational decisions? No, but I would not accept a purely intuitive decision. Mm -hmm. I think you need some data. Mm -hmm. You need to frame it. Yeah. And we talked about it earlier, right? Uh, otherwise, you ask the wrong question. If you, if you have no data, if you're completely on intuition, you may be right, but it's good, it's good to have a couple mm -hmm. of data um, points to at least get the, well, <laughs> with the Google word, get the eigenvectors correct. Mm -hmm. um, you will never have all the data. Come on, that even today, you know, let's say tomorrow I go back to a project in artificial intelligence and need to decide whether to pursue this or that yeah. algorithm. I'm pretty sure the algorithms I'm considering are completely dépassé compared to what leading folks mm -hmm. either at Stanford or in China or yeah. whatever they are are doing. So. No, 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 no. You, you need to be pragmatic, but you cannot be purely intuitive. If you would not have gone into finance and technology, and with your passion and your uh, intelligence and your entrepreneurship, where, what would have been your, your dream uh, career? At 16, I was asked whether I wanted to become a professional piano player. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So maybe I, I could have been, you know, Tom Waits Jr. or something like that. My, my, my voice is, is not so rusk, uh, rusky. Or, you know, be, be the piano man, like Billy Joel would say, or, you know, accompany Bob Dylan. That would be, that would, would be a dream for you. I think it would be fun. And you still play today? Yeah, I, I still do. I still do, not very often. 
Um, but you know, on a rainy Sunday afternoon when there is nothing better to do, you might, you might. Uh, I still buy some music. Recently, I bought uh, the Elton John songbook oh, yeah. because I think Elton John wrote some some great melodies. So I was there in a shopping window. So okay, fine, you go and you buy it. Okay. Tell me a little bit more about your uh, your family. I know that you have two grown-up daughters. So tell a bit about your family and what are the the values that are important f uh, for you and that you have passed on to your children. I I think in terms of you know given my career and at some point in time I was traveling quite a lot internationally. So I think uh, a, a number of the daily. Um, discipline and, and, and character traits, um, I think my wife really earns all the credit for that. Um, but what they tell me at the dinner table um, is basically that they, they knew uh, they had to be good at what they did. Mm -hmm. They could do whatever they want. But you wanted excellence. Good. Yeah. I wanted to see some commitment. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and both of them did it. Oh, the youngest participated in, in uh, acrobatic gymnastics and, and made it one year even to the world championship. Um, and, and, and so I was, I was very, very proud of that. Um, so that whatever you do in life, it's, I think I always said to them, it's fine, but do it with gusto. Gusto is a very important word because it translates that engagement, that commitment. Mm -hmm. And it's also the English for hoosting, eh, which was the most sexy word in Flemish uh, a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. So gusto is quite important. It's quite important to, to have this, this passion. The two daughters are completely different. One is an aerospace engineer, the other one is a medical doctor. So with, with lots of empathy and so on, so totally different personality. Um, but yeah, they're my daughters. Okay. But besides doing a good job, an excellent job, what are also your core values that you live by? Yeah. Um, be yourself. Um, as I said, uh, uh, this mixture of Finding your purpose, finding meaning, go for it, but also um, accept the setback. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important. I think many people are unhappy because they couldn't accept a setback. And that takes time. But ultimately, you should accept it. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, never, never lose your integrity. Did you have serious setbacks in your life that you have to cope with, that um, you had to deal with, and that you learned from? Yeah, I had a few. I think I've been lucky. Uh, if I look around me, I see people that, that really, um, you know, for example, had serious health problems or mm -hmm. had to reinvent their life completely, and they did it. It also leads to me me to believe that you know your personality is always such that most of us can cope with the type of setbacks mm -hmm. that we are given. But yeah, I had a few setbacks. Can you give an example? Um, for example, um, my father became ill um, in 2008 
and that had quite an impact on my life and, and what I had to do. Um, not, not so much that I had to work, but on the, on the emotional, uh, the changes in the emotional relationships. And that was very, very, very tough, very difficult. And then you wanted to help, but then that wasn't appreciated, led to conflict. You probably also did not offer help in the best way, because you learn, right? When you, when you speak to specialists, they say, yeah, but we see that every day. You should not do it like this. You should do it like that. Okay, fine. Yeah. And for us, it's the first time that you go through that. So you have no learning curve in those. Yeah, but yeah, and that, that, was, uh, but that was not easy. Um, but I think there are many, many people who have had to cope with far more difficult things and I consider myself extremely lucky. So you were a lucky person, I mean you grew up, you grew up in Antwerp, born in Antwerp in Belgium. Uh, we, we all very lucky to grow up in, in, in this society of course. So, but if you look at all aspects of your life, what would be say the best thing that has ever happened to you? I remember that moment very well, it happened twice. It was on the birth of my daughter. Both daughters were born with cesarean. And so cesareans make for beautiful babies. <laughs> so baby is born and they do a little test and so on. And then they give it to the father who was sitting in the operating room. It was not much use. And then, you know, you, you get to hold your daughter. And it was my encounter with absolute purity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's amazing uh, what nature does, but it is absolute purity in, in you know, capitalized letters. And then the, the baby clutched my... Um, Perhaps your finger. My, my, my little finger, which later on they told me they all do, but I thought it was sort of like, wow. <laughs> and and I, that happened to me twice. And... and uh, that was absolutely it. Yeah. So clearly your family is very important for you. What is, the, what is that you, you fear most in life? Uh, to, to annoy myself. To annoy yourself? Yeah, no, to, so to, to feel bored. To feel bored is what I'm looking for. To feel bored. But when would that happen? <sighs> yeah, when you are constrained, when you don't have... Uh, freedom to maneuver, mm-hmm. uh, when you can't do things, or when you, you are asked not to do things, but to, to feel bored. Yeah. But outside your passion for finance, technology, music, piano playing, do you have other personal passions that you fill your life with? I like to read a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, re- I've read, I think, a lot of books. Um, and that gives me a lot of inspiration. Mm-hmm. And it, it helps you um, broaden your perspective quite uh, in quite a significant way, I would say. Okay. And can you maybe mention a book or, or a mentor or uh, somebody, a public figure that you have learned from that played an important role in, in your life? Well, we talked about it, uh, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan? Yeah. So Bob Dylan, um, it's something I share with Steve Jobs because I read the Isaacson biography on Steve Jobs. Um, Well, you can say many things. Um, I don't think he's the best singer, um, 
although he can sing beautifully, mm -hmm. but he's not a Van Morrison. Uh, um, I don't think he's uh, the best musician. I think, you know, if you would have to play against Steely Dan, they would win 10 to nil. Um, I, there's a reason why he got the Nobel Prize, right? Mm -hmm. He got a Nobel Prize for literature. And if yeah. you look at, for example, Blood on the Tracks, which is the album he made after he divorced his wife. There's this song, you know, opening, all the songs are great, right? but you know, Tangled Up in Blue, boom. And it starts with four lines, early one morning, the sun was shining, I was laying in bed. I mean, in four lines, you get the whole picture of a man, wife gone, reflecting. Um, he's a master at that. And, and not everything is great. The guy wrote over 500 songs. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they cannot all be, um, you know, that bad. But you should look at the number of covers you can find on Spotify. Mm -hmm. There are multiple thousands. Yeah. Uh, multiple thousands are things like, you know, uh, I Shall Be Released. Of course, everybody knows that. But also lesser known songs like Tangled Up in Blue. Um, um, there, there are many of them. Yeah. And one thing I could recommend to everybody, uh, Amnesty International made a sort of 50-year um, uh, anniversary um, edition. And this was songs of Bob Dylan by others. And, you know, they were not the least. It was Sting and all these others. Yeah. And that is... Because those people, you know, can sing. If you... If you really want to understand what I say, you have to listen to Adele uh, when Singing she sings "Make You Feel My Love." That's a Bob Dylan song, yeah. uh, and she can sing it. Yeah, but absolutely. If you look at how how simple and how beautiful the song is, I would say Bob Dylan. Okay, Johan, we're coming to the end of the um, the interview, um, and I want to um, go back a little bit to the to the professional side, and. Um, You've made a lot of success uh, and, and you made quite a career, uh, top digital leader, international companies, but we all make our mistakes, uh, I'm sure. So what I would like to know from uh, you is what would you consider to be your most brilliant failure that you have ever done? And, uh, and what did you learn from that? I, I would argue that the second example of the project uh, that we discussed, the one where we upgraded um, uh, the security documentation. Uh, there are many elements of great success and many elements of great failure mm -hmm. in that. And I want to quote the great Bob Dylan from <laughs> Love Minus Zero No Limit. My love, she speaks like silence without ideals of violence. She knows there's no success like failure and failure is no success at all. So failure and success are pretty close to each other, mm -hmm. often much more than we think. And I think nothing in life is a universal failure, and nothing in life is a universal success. If you think about this project, you, know, you could say, wow, a new way of doing things adopted by ING, you know, against some strong headwinds, that's a big success. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you could say, yeah, but the guy wasn't even able to convince his boss that this was the right way to go. What a failure is this? Um, you could say, why took it so long? 
you could say, wasn't there not an easier way to do this? Um, you could say, was there enough recognition for the people who went through the hardship of following against the headwinds? No. Probably not. So success and failure... You it's know, sometimes a matter of perspective then, or...? A little bit. Yeah. Uh, for sure, also time horizon. So if you, we would have had this interview like three years ago, I would probably never have... Mentioned this program. Mentioned, mentioned this program, or maybe only when we would be speaking about <laughs> failures. So it is always very multifaceted, and nothing, nothing is, or, or no, most matters in life are seldom, you know, only this or only that. Yeah. Um, but I made, I made some, maybe not brilliant mistakes, but stupid mistakes, um, on two fronts. One is trusting people I shouldn't have trusted, and that hurt. And the other one also is probably uh, entering into fields where I didn't have myself enough background. Um, and, and therefore, you know, I had to touch upon it and it was perhaps not as great as it could have been. I don't think uh, it was ever bad, but I remember sometimes saying I, I should have had more support in this or that field because I know myself not enough about it. It goes back to this um, uh, uh, intuitive versus uh, sensing thing. Eh? Um, you can never know everything, but you need to know the bare essentials. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think I went into situations where I was perhaps insufficiently aware of the bare essential. Okay. Jon, last question of this, uh, of this interview, and thank you so much for, uh, for your time, is these videos are being watched um, also by younger people that have the ambition to become CIO, to become the, the head of cyber international, of big international organizations. What would the advice be that you would give these people if they want to um, uh, step in your, uh, in your footsteps? Um, my advice would be the following. A career is like a, a novel. Mm -hmm. It is written in chapters. And there are, you know, there are thick novels, there are thin novels, there are novels with 100 chapters, there are novels with three chapters. All formats work, but there's got to be a story. Mm -hmm. There's got to be something that brings forward. And, and uh, if I would think again, I think it took me a number of years before I started to realize that, and I wish I would have realized it earlier. Um, but that's very important. Look at it this way. And, and then continue to, to, to use the metaphor. Um, in the beginning of a novel, everything is open. Mm -hmm. If it would be a detective, you know, a corpse has been found. <laughs> but we don't know anything. We have no clue the story could take us anywhere. Uh, but after a few chapters, we start to see, you know, there's already a suspect or there's a second corpse and so on. I think the point I'm trying to make is, as you develop your career, you are um, shaping the story and the next part becomes more logical. And very strange, um,
sometimes you have these books that have these surprise endings <laughs> and totally change direction, you know, towards the end of the book. But you will feel that um, as you progress to your career, the story is taking shape. And I think it's very important to be um, aware of it and to ask the question, is this a great story? Um, and it must be a great story for yourself. And for me, that, that goes back to, did it move the needle? Was it boring? Yes, no. Um, that, that matters to me. But everybody must develop their own answer to that. And, and just like, again, with books, some stories speak more to us than others. And we all have our preferences. Mm -hmm. And this is, a, this is a, a source of value. There is no single answer. I think over the last years, or at least when I went to high school, people had this idea of what is a model career, you know. And you could almost... Um, you know, see it by the titles of the, on the business cards. And I think the, the current generation has received what I think is a better education in terms of being sent uh, made sensitive to social issues, uh, environmental issues, in a better way than we have been, and, and taking a more rounded view to what is the definition of good. Mm -hmm. And the definition of good can be different for each one of us. And that's okay, as long as we believe in our own definition of good. Because if you don't have that, then you lose your authenticity. If you lose your authenticity, I think there's um, a fair chance that you may become unhappy. On that note, thank you so much for your time, for your stories, for coming over, for sharing your wisdom. It was really, really a, a pleasure. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Henry. Thank you.